Theaster Gates grew up in Chicago, and he explains to Michael Barclay how the church protected him from the worst features of the city. Theaster also celebrates the influence of coloured composers and performers on his life. It's difficult to describe the art of my guest today, Theaster Gates, because he's a potter, a sculptor, a filmmaker, a curator of black history, a real estate developer and a professor of fine art in Chicago, where he lives, and where he's also transformed a whole rundown area near the university. In so many American cities, the centre tends to be a no-go area, a wasteland. When he was made a professor in 2007, Theaster Gates bought a derelict bank for a dollar, tore out the urinals, cut them up, and sold them off at $5,000 each as artworks, thereby raising enough money to create a large new art centre. And that was just the beginning, as he'll explain. Gates's art and installation work is now shown all over the world. Current projects include a library for Obama and this year's Serpentine Pavilion building. As his recent show at the Whitechapel Gallery in the East End of London revealed, his work is ambitious, provocative. He takes pots and deconstructs them so that they're exploding back to the original clay. He films his work in dreamlike spaces, a huge abandoned factory, for instance, full of broken bricks and haunting music, including his own singing. It was starting with Scott Joplin, his rag, The Cascades. Why this? Well, Scott Joplin was one of the first formal introductions that I received to black music when I was in college. Um, and so I, I knew informally, I grew up with great music, but uh, Scott Joplin in some ways was like my introduction to classical black music. And I remember uh, going to this uh, music appreciation class um, my freshman year, and my instructor was saying, you know, if, if you want to find the root of an American music, it starts here. And it was the first time that I had heard Scott Joplin. You know, I was 19 years old, and it blew me away. There's so much happiness in the music, isn't there, Theaster? I think that Scott Joplin was one of the early, uh, you know, party guys of great American music. The Cascades, a rag by Scott Joplin, played by Joshua Rifkin. You uh, sang uh, in a gospel choir in Chicago as a child, Theaster, um, and I think you said that 
it made rather wonderful term this a protective hedge around you. What did you mean by that? Hmm. If if you think about the west side of Chicago in the middle 1980s, it was at a time when the evidence of crack, the advent of crack in my neighborhood was at an all-time high. And these were drugs that were not necessarily being made in my neighborhood. They were drugs that in some way infiltrated my neighborhood. And as a result of the, the loss of jobs and the lack of opportunities and the truth of the devastation of these drugs, um, it meant that on the streets there was tremendous violence and despondence. Um, it was a tough time to be an adult black male in the in the middle 80s. And in many ways, it was the black church and it was New Cedar Grove. It was my church that offered me this creative and spiritual protection from the complexities of, of the world, of the, of the truth of the world. And I think on into the early 90s, uh, when I graduated uh, high school and was off to college, I feel like uh, my church was a place where both um, uh, creativity was fostered uh, through music and performance and public speaking, but also prayers were being offered and spiritual counsel was being given so that I had the tools, the, the weaponry necessary to block uh, the challenges that live just outside my door. Your father, Theasta, was a roofer who later went into real estate, and you were the youngest of nine children, the only boy. What was it like growing up with eight older sisters? Well, I mean, first it was amazing <laughs> because my house was a house of love, and um, my sisters, they made a pact, it seemed, early on to just protect me and support me in whatever my interests were. And I, and I felt that from very early on. I'll sometimes say that I wasn't really raised by anyone. I kind of grew up in between my sisters. And, uh, and, they, and they continue to provide me with a tremendous amount of love and support. But it was because I was the only boy that I think my dad really took to teaching me his trades. And so I ended up with my father's hands and hopefully my mother's heart. So those roofing hands may even have helped you in the making of ceramics? Absolutely. And, and, and in fact, I, I owe a big part of my practice to my father because I now make uh, paintings whose primary material is roofing paper in the canon of roofing materials. Well, the music we're going to hear next takes you back to your gospel roots. It's Leontine Price with... Lord, I just can't keep from crying, in an arrangement by Margaret Bonds, another of the first black composers to gain recognition in the United States. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I really wanted to, uh, in, in our time together, highlight and celebrate the importance of gospel music. And uh, Leontine Price, like none other, has such a way, such a voice that champions the spiritual life of humanity. And I'm, I'm very excited to share this piece. This was her debut recital at Carnegie Hall in 1965, and she introduces it. The last two of my favorite spirituals are arranged by a very good friend of mine, Margaret Barnes. The first is, Lord, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. And the last is, he's got the whole world in his hands. 
Valentine Price with Lord I Just Can't Keep From Crying in an arrangement by Margaret Allison Bonds. Pianist was David Garvey in that live recording from 1965. I love the way she colours and bends the note. Is that what attracts you to it? That's definitely part of it. Uh, you know, I'm, I have this huge smile on my face mm-hmm. um, and the way that she employs the minor inside of a minor. Yeah. It's just so gorgeous. As as well as she has a command for the Western canon, I feel like what she does for um, traditional historic black uh, uh, hymnals, it's just unbelievable. And, and uh, to hear this work from Carnegie Hall in 1965, when... Uh, Things were complicated in the U.S. in that moment. It felt like uh, as much as it may have been a spiritual salute, it was also a political salute. And the words are so dark, aren't they? Yet the voice Mm. somehow just takes off and uh, takes it to the heavens. I think that's the beauty of, of gospel music, that it expresses both the joy and the truth of uh, a pain or the pain and the truth of an evident hope.
Ernie Ray hosts a podcast called Beyond Belief. In this extract, Ernie talks to film critic Anna Smith about depictions of the resurrection on film and the fact that allegories like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe are the most successful. This is fundamentally a Christian story, but it has permeated our history and culture. It's been depicted in artistic masterpieces and told and retold both literally and figuratively in music and literature. Anna Smith is a film critic. She hosts a podcast called Girls on Film. I spoke to her about the many interpretations of the resurrection in contemporary film. We've seen a number of biblical-based films show the resurrection over the years. One of the first examples was in 1927's King of Kings, and then in the 60s, The Greatest Story Ever Told depicted Jesus coming out of the tomb. And then we had many TV series, which I watched in my youth, such as Jesus of Nazareth in the 70s. And in the last few decades, we've seen films like The Passion of the Christ and Risen, starring Joseph Fiennes. So while it's dropped off a little, there's still an interest in it. Well, I tell you what, I've seen quite a number of those. And every time I've watched the resurrection scene, I felt uncomfortable. It didn't make easy viewing because it didn't feel real. In terms of you didn't believe the depiction of it. Yeah. I mean, the Cecil B's Mill one was interesting because they decided to film it in black and white. And then in the end, the resurrection was shot in colour to try to emphasise that. And I think most directors have gone for quite an extreme, as you suggest, kind of response to that. Um, The Alleluia chorus is playing in The Greatest Story Ever Told. And lo, I am with you always. Even unto the end of the world. Passion of the Christ is a little bit more subtle, but it is a tricky challenge to filmmakers, I think, how to make that happen without it seeing, frankly, melodramatic. The theme comes up quite often out of a Christian context, I think, of films like E.T., for instance. What do you think that's about? Well, I think in family films, uh, resurrection is often used as a way to introduce peril. Obviously, E.T., as we all know, dies, but he's brought back to life by Elliot, his friend's love and grief. Um, so there's an element of reassurance and hope. And I think with children's films, it's quite important to reassure quite quickly that everything's going to be OK. So you have brief drama and then you have that lovely bonding moment and the joy of the resurrection. Yes, if you take E.T., Harry Potter, the the Lion King, they are all allegories. We're not expected to believe that they are actual physical happenings. And isn't that why they work? And some of the films depicting the resurrection of Christ really don't. 
I think in a way, working it into a story that is an allegory, another one is the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is an explicitly a Christian one. So you have the ability to be a bit more subtle. You have the ability to weave it into a story which has lots of other elements and real world applications and magical elements. And, and the idea of magic, of course, is something that really appeals to children. And that's long been used as a way to actually get a religious message across. But we saw the knife. If the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, from 2005. Anna, Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, which you mentioned, was a phenomenal box office hit. And yet it was very explicitly a Christian story. And I understand there's going to be a sequel to that, uh, which will deal with the resurrection. What do you make of that? Well, it was extremely popular and it'll be interesting to see how popular the sequel is because there is a theory, perhaps more outside of America, that interest is waning in, in this topic in, in big budget films. But The Passion of the Christ, Resurrection, I've read that Mel Gibson said there'll be elements of imaginings and dreams and it, it might be quite fanciful in some ways, perhaps not drawn deliberately from the text. Um, we'll see.
Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. He looks again at the problems Moses faced when trying to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. Clouds and fire have one thing in common. They make it so that you can't see past them. That would be disconcerting if it weren't for one fact. Someone does see, and that someone is God. And for some reason he's chosen to speak through me, Moses, to lead the Israelites to the land he's promised us. So here's the next account of our journey. God gave us many instructions as to how to live, but more importantly, how to worship him. Not the least was how to furnish the tents of meeting, how the priests were to prepare and clothe themselves to minister in the tent, and what people must do. When we'd finished building the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, and the altar, it was time to go into it and worship. The thing is, we couldn't. There was such power emanating from the tents of meeting. The glory of the Lord was emanating from it, and the cloud obscured the altar and the ark. How can I describe it? I can't. Suffice to say, there was an absolute love, perfection, power, and majesty pulsating from the tent of meeting. And one doesn't just venture into a place like that. After this, God continued to give us precise instructions. We were to take a census of how many warriors we had ready for battle and to exempt the priestly line of the tribe of Levi. There had to be structures defining the limits of the camps of each tribe to ensure harmony amongst them. The Lord also gave us prescriptions for the consecration of the firstborn males in the important celebration of the Passover feast. With regards to travel and what itinerary to follow next, God moved his clouds and fire. When they moved, we were to move. As you can imagine, we had to be in a state of constant readiness, like an army always ready to go on the next battle campaign. Just to remind you, the manna that God rained daily from heaven continued to feed the tribes, enough for daily consumption and twice the quantity the day before the Sabbath. However, certain people started to complain that they no longer wanted to eat this manna, but wanted to eat meat, and said they hated this manna. Well, at the start, it was only a few discontented louts, but they had planted a seed that spread like wildfire. Even Miriam and Aaron, who were my staunchest allies, were taken up with this rebellious spirit, complaining that God was not only speaking through me, but through them as well, so why listen to me? Well, the Lord was angry and spoke to the people thus, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings, as he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid? to speak against my servant, against Moses. Things happened quickly from that moment. The cloud departed from the midst of the tents of meeting, and when I looked over at Miriam, she was leprous, as white as snow. I immediately implored the Lord to show her mercy and to heal her, because I knew that she loved me. She was just caught up in the complaints of the others in the camp. God answered me that if her father had been displeased with her, it was the custom to have her isolated and to bear her shame for seven days. He healed her, but ordered her to be shut outside the camp for seven days, and there would be no traveling until she had rejoined the camp. Okay, you might ask, what about Aaron? He was caught up in the rebellious attitude as well? Well, that's a valid point. 
but one which I can't answer, except to say that God knows the heart of each one. But I'm convinced that Aaron also received a strong correction during this time from the Lord, even if it was as an onlooker witnessing the power of God. As a result of the people's complaining, well, they got their way with regards to the meat they'd wished for. God sent a strong wind from the east, and this wind brought quails with it, so many that they covered the land, so numerous that they were a meter deep on the surface of the land inside the camp. The complainers were reacting the same way as when I came down from the mountaintops with the commandments of God in my arms, and they were feasting and worshipping a golden calf. It was as if they were drunk on meat, scooping armfuls into reed baskets, and the cooking fires were constantly roasting these quails. However, no sooner had they gorged themselves with this meat that they had earnestly desired, that they became sick with it. And many people died and were buried on that spot. Well, there's a lot to take away from these events. It's clear that it's important to be careful what you pray for or ardently desire, because it could be destructive for you and those around you. We can't see past clouds and fire, but someone does see, and that someone is God. And the safest and most sensible approach is to simply do what he commands, because he is God and we're not. This comes from the book of Numbers, chapters 1 through 12.